0: Well, James, how many guys struggle with parts of James? Yeah, uh, Martin Luther struggled with James. He called it the epistle of straw, and then he threw it into the appendix of his German translation of the Bible. And uh, the reason was, is we'll talk about it tonight, was that the, he couldn't figure out what James meant in chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of the chapter. He's using uh, language and stuff similar to Paul's. And uh, he had just discovered anew the the crown jewel of Christianity, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And James appeared to get in the way of that. And and if you've ever met with uh, Mormon missionaries... Uh, this, that is their favorite section of the book of James because it helps them contradict our view that we're saved by grace through faith alone. And it's not of works, as Ephesians 2.8 says. But when you examine the text more closely, you learn that that's not what James is saying. Uh, he's actually defending something that Paul uh, was saying and um, just using some of the same language. But terms don't always mean exactly the same thing, not in English, not in Greek, and probably not in any language, and the context in which they're placed in uh, changes the meaning of words and concepts and all kinds of stuff. So we'll look at that tonight. And um, yeah, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll do that. All right, Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Uh, We thank you for all of your word. Every bit of it is fully inspired, it's fully authoritative, and, uh, and we're just grateful, Lord, that you, in your goodness, uh, gave it to us, that we might know you, that we might know your will, that we might understand our world, and understand the insanity in us that we call sin, and um, yeah. Yeah. So I just pray that you would teach us tonight through the book of James. Amen. All right. Okay, well, let's get right down to it with the author. Um, the, James, he's the author. It says that in the very first verse. But he does not um, identify which James uh, in the New Testament that we're talking about. Uh, there are a number of people in the New Testament with the name James. And uh, most of them have all of them have kind of a uh, something that distinguishes them. There's the James, the son of Zebedee, uh, that's John the apostle's brother. Uh, there's James the son of Alphaeus. There's James the Less. I'm not sure if that's a nickname you want. Uh, James the father of Judas, and then there's James the brother of the Lord. And uh, so, which of these is uh, the author of the book of James, the epistle? Now, as I said, all of them have kind of a, a, a suffix to them, if you will, that identifies which James it is. You know, uh, whether it's you know son of or father of or the less. Uh, but James, the half brother of Jesus, uh, he was only given that. That's only said of him one time in the New Testament, and and uh, that's in uh, James, not James, um, Galatians one nineteen. My notes say James one nineteen, but I know that's not Uh, correct—a little typo of my own. But all of the other times that he's mentioned, it's just James. It's just he was known as James. Okay, and uh, so I think that that is consistent with how the author introduces himself. He doesn't say this is James the son of Alphaeus, or this James or that James, but it's just James—the way that everybody knew him. Uh, So I think the Lord's brother is the best candidate uh, for the epistle. Uh, There's other reasons here. James, the brother of Jesus, he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. In fact, that is what converted James. We know from John 7 that um, Jesus' brothers did not believe in him, any of them. Uh, And it wasn't until later that his brothers did, at least two of them, James and Jude, uh, perhaps another um, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. James was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Uh, well, first, as an eyewitness, that's recorded in uh, 1 Corinthians 15.7, uh, and he was the pastor of the Jerusalem church. It seems to be very clear as we read about him in the book of Acts and then in Galatians. Um, early church history has that as the same. I think it's, it's clear in Acts 21.18 uh, he's, after Peter was released from prison, uh, he tells the, the group that he went to, he says, tell everybody and make sure you tell James. So James is kind of singled out as an important individual in Jerusalem. Uh, he had a prominent position of authority at the Jerusalem council, even among the apostles in Acts 15. He, was in, he is said to be the one that sent out delegates from his church in Galatians 2.12. Paul considered him an apostle, Galatians 1.19. Uh, and then he's also, again, named among the most prominent apostles with Peter and John in Galatians 2.9. And uh, so this James uh, would be the only one, as far as I understand it, in the, in the idea of you know, who has the authority to write Uh, New Testament letters, uh, inspired letters. Typically it's an apostle or somebody that is being directly uh, supervised by an apostle like Mark and Luke were. Mark, we believe, by Peter, Luke by Paul. And uh, so this letter carries a lot of authority with it. There's five chapters and over 50 imperatives. An imperative is a command. And so the person that wrote this is speaking with apostolic authority. And so, also, um, I, there are so many to choose from in all of this, but, so James uh, was at the council in Acts chapter 15, and James kind of, he kind of said, well, this is what I've decided to do. It's kind of the way that he answers everything that's happened at the council, and he says, I think we should write these things. And, and then that's actually what they write. And he seems to have headed all that up. And it's interesting that in his language, in his discourse, and in the presentation of the letter, there's phrases and words that are common in his letter. So there's kind of an interesting uh, back and forth. Luke records his actual words, and then that similar language is used um, in James. So for instance, the greeting, In Acts 15, in that letter that was sent to the Gentile churches is basically identical to the one in his letter. So it's Acts 15.23 and James 1. The interesting thing about that form of greeting, it's not used by anybody else in the New Testament. So that's interesting. And then uh, the expression uh, that he uses, listen, my brethren. Uh, It's used one time by Paul, and it's used one time by Stephen, uh, but it's used twice by James. So not a signature thing, but uh, interesting. Also, um, there's some striking similarities between uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the entire epistle of James. And there might be a way to account for this more than just James studying Jesus' sermons. The figures of speech, the idioms, and all of these things... uh, they may be common because they came from a common household. You understand? Uh, you ever notice that brothers have a way of talking like other brothers? You ever been around the um, um, the Kuykendall boys? It's is like, okay, who am I talking to? You all, t- you all sound the same. Okay, and uh, that's very common, uh, even. Uh, The Corwins are like that. Uh, My kids will probably be like that. Um, So it may just, we can account for that potentially just for the fact that they were raised in the same household. Um, Anyway, there's a lot of intriguing uh, internal reasons uh, to believe that James, the brother of Jesus, was the author. There's also good external evidence of his authorship. Very early, Clement of Rome... Uh, one of the earliest uh, fathers of the church, Ignatius, another one, and then uh, the shepherd of Hermes. Uh, they all held that um, it was the Lord's brother who authored it. Uh, one of the earliest uh, Bibles was the uh, the, uh, the Syrian Bible called the Peshitta. Um, I have one. Uh, it lists James as the author. And uh, so, anyway, I I think it's uh, reasonable. I think it's logical to assume. Uh, from the evidence that James, the brother of Jesus, is the author. Well, that was pretty small. Can you guys see that? Okay. All right. It's really small on my computer. It's not so bad up there. What about the dates? Uh, there's two dates that are uh, put out. There's a, a, an early date and a later date. The early date is about 48 AD, which makes it potentially... Uh, the, the earliest letter written in the New Testament, maybe the second. And then the latter date is 58 AD, which is quite a bit later in, in church history, uh, as far as epistles and stuff go. Uh, I'm in favor of the early date. I think there are some, some fairly good arguments for the latter date, but I don't think they hold up as well as the, the early date. Some, some reasons for this. In James's letter, there's no mention of the Gentile church, which really began to take life uh, after 50 A.D. It seems strange, writing to the the, the diaspora, the the 12 tribes scattered around, uh, that he wouldn't mention something about their brothers out there with them. Uh, I think that's one argument for the early uh, writing. Why would he... Ignore that fact if he wrote after 50 A.D. Uh, There's no mention of the Jerusalem Council from 49 A.D. One would think that the conclusions of the Jerusalem Council would have uh, been addressed or weighed in somewhat especially if uh, things would have been so close. Uh, A.T. Robertson says that the sins addressed were common among early Jewish Christians. He doesn't give any examples but I thought I would Uh, Throw his thing out there. Uh, The letter reads more like a sermon, like the Sermon on the Mount, than one of the general epistles, which were written later. Uh, The discussion of faith and works in chapter 2 indicates that he knew nothing of Paul's writings in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Because it seems that if he had known about Paul's letter in Romans and Galatians, that he would have qualified some of his statements. Does that make sense? Otherwise, it just looks like pure division if it's not interpreted correctly. So I cling to the earlier date with the book of James. I think that's more typical among scholars. Um, Not A.T. Robertson, he certainly takes the early view. Uh, He's a Greek scholar. Norman Geisler gives no opinion, which is very not like Norman. He's usually very opinionated. Uh, But he just gives you the arguments for the early and the latter, and then he lets it go. I'm not used to him. Just letting something go like that. So anyway, uh, most of the others that I've read, they accept an early date, and I like it. So let's look at uh, an issue here with James. Um, the only he was he was only the half brother of Jesus. Um, we say that he's a half brother because Joseph is not Jesus's real dad. Okay. And uh, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was virgin born. But then, uh, unlike uh, what Catholic tradition states, uh, they say that James was um, the older stepbrother of Jesus. And they say that he's the older stepbrother because, they, they, because of their theology. They have to believe that Joseph had a previous wife before Mary and had all of these children. And then... Uh, she died or whatever, and then he married Mary. And so they wouldn't be half-siblings. They would be the stepchildren. And uh, so it has to do with the Catholic tradition of Mary's uh, perpetual virginity, uh, which is very interesting uh, in light of the text of Scripture. Uh, Matthew 1, 24 through 25 says, Joseph did not know Mary sexually until after she brought forth her firstborn son, that is, they didn't have sex until Jesus was born. Uh, also, Jesus was the firstborn. What does that imply? Not the onlyborn. Yeah, not the onlyborn. In fact, Mary had four more boys and at least two girls. Okay, At least, we know he had, she had four more boys, and uh, we just don't know who all the girls were. It was at least two. That's Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, Also, the statement Joseph did not know her is in the imperfect tense as opposed to the perfect tense. Uh, So Joseph not knowing Mary sexually was only temporary. Okay, yeah. Uh, Now the reason for this this veneration of virginity within marriage um, is the fact that sex, according to the... Uh, the monastics was that sex is only, it's basically a necessary evil for procreation, for procreating the race, all right? And that it's sinful to take pleasure in it, even with your spouse. Uh, According to Catholic tradition, uh, Mary was sinless and pure, and to them it meant that she was not defiled in that manner, okay? But it's, it's very interesting. Uh, it contradicts what is said in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 1 through 5, where Paul elevates you know, sex in marriage as a thing of intimacy and affection and actually a responsibility within marriage. And it's funny because Joseph is said to be a righteous man, and if he was such a righteous man, how could he violate the Scriptures in regard to what Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, affection that is due your spouse. Okay, God has granted that to them. So sex within marriage is a thing to celebrate. It's also something that we learn from the Song of Solomon. Uh, it's something to enjoy your spouse in. And so this whole idea just throws you know, a mess into the interpretation of Scripture and the reality of biblical history. Okay? Uh, James was the younger half-brother of the Lord Jesus. Okay? He was the son, the biological son of Mary, Uh, So don't get hung up on any of that that garbage. It is garbage, by the way. All right. um, Well, those came up big up there. So let's talk about three uh, things in the book of James that uh, are interesting, and then two, at least, that have caused some uh, controversial stuff within the church. Now, all of these, the three things that I have mentioned here, they could be, you know, rendered from other passages of Scripture. You know, this discussion about sin, uh, justification by works, I have the question mark there, uh, because James does say that we're justified by works and not faith alone. That has to be explained in its context. And uh, and then this thing, anointing the sick. Um, yeah, Jay Vernon McGee has the funniest commentary on this that I just think is... Uh, silly. Um, as much as I love McGee. Uh, so let's talk real quick just about the prog- progression of sin, James 1 13-14. Uh, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Uh, he should also have a parenthesis in there and says that when somebody sins, let nobody s- say that the devil made me do it. Okay. He says, for God... "...cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death." Death. Death. So, you know, there is some confusion in people's minds about the nature and source of temptation. Now, the word test and tempt are the same Greek word. And so the context has to determine, uh, you know, exactly what it is. You know, God is free to test uh, anyone He chooses, uh, but He does not tempt people to sin. Um, and and if we, when we look at the nature of God... Um, throughout the scriptures, what we discover is that it would be a conflict within God's own nature to do that, okay, to tempt with sin or if he could actually be tempted by sin. He can't do it be- he can't be tempted by sin because there's nothing in him uh, that could be drawn to sin and there's nothing in him that could move him to tempt someone else to sin. It's not in him to do that. Uh, as James says, it cannot happen. It just can't happen. Um, He's impervious to things like that. People, on the other hand, uh, we have a sin nature that is predisposed to sin, and we have an appetite for what is sinful. You ever notice that? Um, if you're in denial, have you ever noticed that in your children? Okay, We have an appetite for it, and therefore we can be tempted both internally, that is, we can tempt ourselves And we can also be tempted externally from things outside of ourselves. And when the temptation is external, uh, it is only appealing uh, to what we're already inclined to do. Already inclined. Uh, We can only be enticed by what entices us. And that's the part that we hate about ourselves. Amen? It's the part that we wish we could take a knife and cut it out. And cast it away from ourselves. Uh, But that is um, the the prerogative of Jesus alone when we uh, leave this body of sin as uh, Paul would say and uh, we're given a new body that has no sin nature, no propensity, no inclination at all. In heaven uh, we will be free um, not to sin. We'll be totally free. So sin itself um, is lusting after something, not, not noticing or being aware of something. So people, some people have said they feel guilty for being tempted. And they think that being tempted is sinful. No, it's not. It would be sinful for you to tempt someone to sin, but for you to be tempted is not... Sinful. Okay? Sin is sinful. Uh, if being tempted is sinful, we have a problem in our theology because Jesus was tempted, right? He was tempted in the desert, and um, so therefore it is not a sin to be tempted. Sin is cooperating with temptation. It's following through with our thoughts, our words, our actions, and so forth. And then James says that when we sin, uh, it leads to death. What does that mean? How many of you guys have died after sin? None of you. Or have you? I think death occurs every time we sin. Every time we sin. You remember uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, God said, of all the trees of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree in the midst of the garden you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. The day that you eat it, literally in dying, you shall surely die. Did they die the day they ate it? They most certainly did. Or God is confused. Now they didn't kill over, okay, so they didn't uh, physically die, but Uh, the text indicates that the process of death began. They began to age. They became subject to sickness and things like that. But there was problems after they sinned, wasn't there? What's the first thing they did? They They went through the garden. They found the itchiest leaf in the garden, and they made coverings, fig leaves. Uh, So they were, the first thing they experienced was shame. And then when they heard the Lord's voice, they were afraid and they felt guilt. Instead of running out to greet their good daddy, they hid from him. And then when they're being examined by God, what does Adam do? He blames God and the woman for his failure, and then the woman blames the serpent, and the serpent has no one to blame. Okay? So you have all of these problems, and then, then there is this removal of Adam and Eve from the garden. There's this separation. Now, in the Scriptures, death always means separation, okay? whether it's the... And James will even say it, the body without the spirit is dead when they've been separated They're dead, okay? And then when the soul is separated from God, there is eternal death. And so there's a a death, as it were, uh, between you and God because of sin. But what about when you sin against someone else? Isn't there a... There's consequences in the relationship, isn't there? There's a death, as it were. And I I believe that that's what's being talked about here. Gives birth to death. Now, ultimately, we know that the wages of sin is death, uh, but we still sin, and we're not going to experience the ultimate consequence of sin. Why not? Why will we not experience the ultimate consequence of sin? That's right, because Jesus did for us. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a wedge, there's a breakdown in fellowship because of sin, and it needs to be reconciled. All right, let's talk about um, justification by works. This probably poses the most, the greatest difficulty interpretation. Um, in the book of James. Uh, So people, what they do, uh, they see the language of Romans 4 and they think that Paul and James are using the same language but coming to contradicting uh, uh, conclusions. And so it's troubling. But they're not coming to different conclusions. The difference between them uh, is the same difference between what we'd say the, the root of the tree and the fruit of that tree. Okay, root and fruit. Just as the root uh, comes before fruit and the fruit is dependent on the root, faith comes before works and works are dependent upon faith. Uh, Works are a product of faith. So James asks a good question. He says, what does it profit my brethren if someone has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now he means can that faith save him? The the non-working faith, the non-functioning faith, can that kind of faith save him? And so the answer is no, because faith without works is is no faith at all, okay? When we exercise faith in Christ, we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. All the power in the universe takes residence in us. Um, Don't you think there ought to be some effect some product or result of that? I, w- I would hope so. Okay, there should be a product to that. But the person that has no works, he's saying they have no faith, and therefore they're not saved. So his argument is that genuine faith produces works. We might say that uh, just as a pulse, is the one true vital sign of life. Faith, or, or yeah, works rather, are the true vital sign of faith. If you take uh, someone's religious pulse, they have a confession of faith, but when you check the pulse, and there's no works, we've got no faith. It just doesn't exist. Just as a body without a pulse is dead, faith without works is dead dead. Works do not cause our faith, they just demonstrate the presence of faith. Okay? So we cannot be saved by, by a faith that does not actually exist, and the absence of works proves that faith is not existent. So James says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying that it's impossible to demonstrate the reality of faith without the presence of works. So the person that says, you know, he says, show me your faith without your works. He knows he's won the argument because you can't do that. You can't show faith without works. So only the person who works can prove that they have faith. But then perhaps what is most difficult in all of this section is what James says in chapter in in verse 21 because it seems to just outright contradict Paul's teaching in Romans 4. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? And Romans 4, verse 2 and 5 says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. How do we reconcile uh, the two of those things? So first of all, when James makes reference to Genesis 22, where Abraham offered Isaac, the text itself does not say that Abraham was justified by doing it. That is a conclusion offered by James, and it's the right conclusion, okay? How can that be? Doesn't that contradict Paul? No, because James says in verse 23 that Genesis 22 fulfilled Genesis 15. Years earlier, 15.6, where God declared Abraham righteous. It says, Abraham believed in the Lord and his faith was accounted to him for righteousness. So in Genesis 15:6, there is a confession of faith from Abraham, and from God's perspective, he's justified. But there's no works of obedience yet in Abraham's life to demonstrate that his faith is real. Okay? Until that day that he raised his knife over Isaac. How many of you would raise your knife over Isaac, as it were? if you were not fully believing and trusting in the God who gave you the command. Unless you're a sicko. Okay? Yeah, that was the real problem from man's perspective, that Abraham's faith was no more than a confession. But then he showed, he was vindicated, which the word justified can also mean, by his works. Because he had a living faith, it was demonstrated through his opportunity of obedience. Okay? Yeah. In other words, that's when we took Abraham's pulse, historically. Okay? His works did not cause his faith. His faith caused his works. Okay? If Abraham... um, did not believe and trust in God's promise, none of that story would have happened. In fact, Hebrews says that Abraham trusted God so resolutely that he believed that God would have raised Isaac from the dead to fulfill his promises to Abraham. So he believed. He believed. So in verse 24, James concludes with, You see then that man is justified by works and not by faith alone. He's saying that a person's faith is vindicated by works, by obedience. Okay. Yeah. So the conclusion that James is coming to here is that the person who confesses faith in Jesus but does not obey his word should not be confident in their salvation. Yeah. Like Paul says... To the Corinthians, um, do you not know yourselves of whether or not you're even in the faith? Uh, because their conduct was not consistent with their confession. And he says, you need to check yourselves. Okay. You need to check it out. Uh, so the, the assumption here is that apparently among the early Jewish Christians, there were a number of confessing uh, Jews in Christ, uh, but it wasn't being shown in their actions. And when you read the entire epistle of James, that comes out quite clear. Uh, James one twenty two is where it starts. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because someone who hears only and does not do, they don't have works to prove their faith. And no works, he says, no faith. So it's important. Um, that argues for what Paul teaches, doesn't it? He says, you know, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith alone. And then in verse 10 of uh, Ephesians 2, he says that we're, we were created this way, you know, through faith for good works. So good works follow faith. Yeah, Titus is, is filled with Paul saying, make sure that your people are doing good works because we don't want them to be unfruitful to be unfruitful. So, works are important. All right. Um, let's do uh, anointing the sick with oil. So here at Calvary Chapel, uh, we encourage people that if they are sick, to do as the text says, to call for the elders so that we might anoint them with oil and then pray for them. James says this in five fourteen through 15, he said, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him or her, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, some people do not believe that we should do this. Why not? It's in the New Covenant. Why would we avoid doing that? Some Bible teachers have said that this issue here of anointing people with oil is purely medicinal, and that the elders of the church were given the charge to apply oil to a person's body for healing. So that now the elders have a nursing ministry. Ron's like, "I'm not going to be an elder anymore. Okay. Yeah. They say that James is teaching us to depend on God through prayer, but not to the exclusion of medicine. Okay. Um, now, I think that that statement is true in itself, uh, but it's a terrible interpretation of the passage itself. Um, one of the reasons they hold this view is because the word anoint uh, here can mean to rub. To rub oil on something, okay? So if you have a dry spot uh, on your body, you can put olive oil on it, but I don't need the elders to do that, okay? Um, I can do that, or I can have my wife do it. I don't need to bother the elders uh, like they have some special medicinal oil. Uh, I could do that at home, and then I could come to the church and have them pray for me. Uh, they can save their oil, uh, it's a very strange thing. When they say that uh, the, the word to anoint can mean to rub, I say, so? Who cares? Okay, uh, That's the possible meaning of the word. It does mean that in certain cases. Uh, but I think it's hogwash to say that James was endorsing the combination of prayer and medicine in this passage. The same word is used when the disciples were healing the sick by the power of God... And there's no indication that the oil uh, was rubbed on a person for medicinal reasons. Okay, the, the, the verse is Mark 6:13. Now the passage uh, follows Jesus giving the disciples power over demons. And then the parallel passage in Matthew 7 or Matthew 10, verse 1, says Jesus gave them power over all kinds of sickness and disease. Okay, The point of sending out the disciples was to preach the gospel and to perform miracles that would validate the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus says the signs and wonders were for. If the disciples were healing people in the same way everyone else was healing people, how would that help out the gospel in any way at all? That makes no sense at all. It would not be a demonstration of the power of Christ. When you read Matthew 10 and you read Mark, it's all about the supernatural power of God to cast out demons and to heal the sick. It's very strange to throw in there a non-supernatural medicinal thing when the kingdom is coming with power. Healing with oil would not validate the message of the gospel. It just would not. It's just, it's absolutely silly. So don't interpret it that way, please. The best explanation is that the oil was symbolic, as oil, olive oil, is frequently symbolic in the scriptures. In James 5.14, he's instructing the elders of the church to anoint the, the sick with oil and pray for their healing, trusting in God to do the healing not depending on that oil for anything, okay? The oil is a reminder to every elder praying that if the person is healed, they are not the source of the healing, okay? They're not. The oil is symbolic. God is the healer. Also, in this whole thing, there's the mention of the the plurality of elders. I think this is really important. I think that um, this would be really helpful for people like Benny Hinn and uh, Kenneth Copeland and guys like that. You see, if if people often got healed when I prayed for them uh, without the elders, I mean, if I laid hands on people and and all of that and people just, just typically got healed, what would that do for me? That would create a reputation for me as the healer as a healer, and then, then people would start trusting in me, and they wouldn't just go to anybody for prayer. They would go to the, the miracle man, wouldn't they? And, yeah, and then I'd have crazy hair. That's right. Go on TBN. But if the elders pray together for the sick, and the person gets well, no one but God knows, as the text says, who prayed the prayer of faith, okay, That God, the 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 prayer of faith that God honored, okay, to heal the sick, and then if that's the case, who gets the glory? Not not us. The Lord does. I think the plurality of elders is a layer of protection from human pride. Okay, that's and so I really like it. It doesn't mean that we should avoid praying for people uh, without the elders present. It's just prescribing uh, the way that things should be done normally. It brings things into the context of the church under the authority of the elders and then looking to God as the the, the healer of people. So, interesting stuff. Um, Yeah, I I just laugh every time I have a commentator say that the the oil is medicine. It's true. In in the ancient world, oil was used as medicine. Uh, That's not the sense of the text. Nowhere in the New Testament. Okay. And then also, I would mentioned it Sunday about the issue of laying on of hands. And in Hebrews, the laying on of hands is mentioned among some of the most fundamental doctrines in the New Testament. When you read through your New Testament, you find people laying hands on everybody for a variety of reasons. Okay. And uh, so I don't think it's something that we should take lightly. I believe that when we pray for people, we should lay hands on them. I don't think it's magical. Uh, I just think it's something we should do. So, If we're uh, installing people into ministry, I think we should lay our hands on them. Okay? And, and when your children are being bad, I think you should lay your hands on them. Let's look at the outline. Uh, I stole it from Norman Geisler. Um, If you've read through the book of James, it probably makes the outline make a lot more sense. He likes to make them catchy for memorization. Sometimes I think it's helpful. Uh, Sometimes I think it's even harder to memorize. So um, I have the outline of the book of Romans memorized, uh, but I don't have it memorized in a catchy way. I have it memorized in a logical way. And I I guess maybe that's the way my brain works, but catchy one-liners... As soon as they go in, they go out, just like somebody's name. And, uh, but some people, they function that way. So uh, he begins uh, patience and uh, trials rewarded. Okay? If, uh, if you fall into various uh, trials, it's time to seek the Lord. And, uh, and God will uh, do things in your life. Uh, but you've got to believe, he says. If you don't believe, he says you're like a, double, a double-minded man. Okay, so there's reward for patience and trials. Talks about practice of truth required. I missed my parentheses there. Chapter one, verses 16 through 27, uh, and then partiality and thoughts rebuked. Uh, I love James's discussion on uh, showing partiality to people. Uh, it's a, a good thing to remember, not to be partial. Uh, this one I think is kind of confusing. It's the section that we talked about in uh, you know faith and works and all that. Productivity of trust revealed. So the product of faith is revealed through what? Works, obedience. Yep. Uh, perfection of tongue related. Uh, nobody talks about the tongue as well as James, uh, and the, everything he says is just so true about the nature of, of, of man's tongue. And, and women's, by the way. You're not to be excluded from that. Uh, it's, a, it's an evil. Chapter 3, principles of transgression remedied, um, perversion of treasures reviled. Uh, he talks about the misuse of, of earthly goods, uh, perseverance in testing Recommended. So the end of of chapter five is about encouraging these Jewish Christians who are suffering persecution and um, persevere through it. Uh, There's a good result. And that's the book of James. And I went a little long. So if you have questions, you'll have to wait till after prayer. Okay? All right. Okay, let's pray. Will you please stand up? I only have you do that on Thursday night, so I know who's actually sleeping. <laughs> I'm teasing. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the book of James. It's just, it's probably the most practical book in the New Testament. And uh, it just comes at us like the Proverbs do, one-liners of, of practical wisdom and uh, ways to please God, to be a blessing to our neighbor how to conduct ourselves in our meetings, and and, this is good. And James is one of those books we should tend to frequently uh, for a solid, holy walk with you, Lord. So thank you for it, and I pray that uh, our study tonight would cause all of us to dig deeper and that we might walk more consistent, Lord, with your word and worthy of you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for my church family. Pray that you would continue to just lavish your grace upon them and help them to be good ambassadors for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.